Hello, you're listening to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. And we are going to be revisiting Polari's first show at Heaven Nightclub in quite some time. Paul, obviously the end of 2020 was very disappointing when we realised with a matter of days to go that the show that we planned at Heaven, or rather that you had planned at Heaven, couldn't go ahead. In May, towards the end of the month, we returned. How did that feel? It felt um, very emotional. It felt... It was a huge relief in many ways because there was there was... You know, having having made the plans before and then and then them change at the last minute, and having very little faith in the government and their decision making processes, <laughs> um, there was always that faint fear that maybe the same thing would happen again and we'd get a cancellation very late in the day. Also, people were very slow to book. I think they'd been burnt the previous time, so ticket sales were slow. And then towards the end, there was a huge rush and it ended up being really busy. But um, so there was a lot of trepidation in a way, but getting back in the building on the day for me was very emotional. And also it was the first time that I was going to be on stage since I stopped drinking because I quit drinking on December 31st. I had a glass of champagne for New Year's Eve and that was my last drink. And usually before going on stage, I have a drink or two to steady my nerves and so I was thinking, God, can I do this? And also to go back on stage and it'd be that stage, because this is a huge stage. Heaven is a, is, a, is a very big stage to command, you know. It's, it's kind of a rock star stage more than a cabaret stage. Also, it was quite emotional because Fiji Lee was on the bill and I knew it was going to be her last gig with us. So there was an awful lot of emotions going around, really. The atmosphere backstage was great, though. It was really, everyone was very, very buzzed up about it. Everyone was very excited to be back on stage again and be in front of a live audience because we hadn't been in front of a live audience since October. A lot of our regulars were there. Because it was all table seating, I was able to allocate tables to people when they booked on a sort of first-come, first-served basis. But obviously I recognised the names of the regulars straight away and they often were the first to book anyway, so I made sure they were near the front. And just to ensure that there's that, that you know the atmosphere you want, you know, when you come on, on stage in a big venue like that you want the the front few tables to be full of your friends and family and and uh, fans just to get the atmosphere going so yeah there was there was there were there were a lot of mixed feelings um bit of nerves but once I got on stage it really did feel so comfortable I felt so comfortable on stage I really enjoyed that show Well, you did brilliantly hosting and it was great fun for me to be quasi backstage in the tower, or as we call it, the princess in the tower, doing my recordings among the artists, uh, in some cases standing a bit back from them and in some cases standing towards the front of the box to get closer to the stage. First up, you had PJ Samuels, who I met towards the end of last year, but only online. How did you meet PJ and what made you decide to put her on first? I met PJ um, a couple of years ago when the sister anthology came out from Team Angelica and she came to South Bank, Polari at South Bank, and she did a set and she I just I just fell in love with her straight away. I just thought I love you. She's just she's got such a wonderful warm energy about her. She's she's great fun. I think she's hugely talented, very modest very easy to work with all the things i like about people there's no there's no difficulty working with her and since then there was there was an occasion when someone who should remain nameless let, left left me in the lurch at the last minute they literally they were scheduled to to appear at an event and they didn't let me know until half past 6 and the show was starting at half past 7 and i contacted pj and she basically just stepped in at an hour's notice had I not already thought the world of her, she would have gone up in my estimation just by doing that. So I just thought she would, she would be a good person to open the show because she she has a natural warmth about her. She's just very warm. And even though her poetry is often quite 
tough. It's about some quite tough subjects. Her delivery is not remotely combative or anything. She's 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 very much a kind of she sort of gets you on side and she kind of woos the audience and she warms the audience up and then she sort of delivers the 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 punchlines and I thought that would be a good a good tonal start to the show because I knew I knew that the show was going to be pretty hard hitting the first half so mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of ease people in with something deceptively it's it's that sort of iron fist and a velvet glove thing that she has going on I think you know she's she's a strong yeah. woman but she but she delivers it in a very very um way that in a way that's very hard to take to object to or to or to take umbrage at she's very charming and likable and warm she has an amazing smile <laughs> and she looks fantastic i mean her, her her whole look is just amazing and i just thought that would be a nice way of sort of easing people into the show because i knew it was going to go off in a much more hard-hitting direction after that. <laughs> Please welcome the wonderful PJ Samuels. Find time for each other to dance. 
Make your own spells and rituals. Your mix is not a burden. Explore your possibilities. Chant only a while spinning voodoo all to a juju script. Then roll out to church if that's your bag. Because you're everything. Everything and your child is waiting for you. Bring your potions to the pot. Let's make magic. Black femme magic. And there's keloid starring where they join. Bruises where they overlap. My intersections ache. We had a strange and strangely interesting summer. So this is an elegy for summer lost. The sunshine came or didn't. I was never sure. Locked inside, hiding from the invisible. My friend, who had never even kept fresh flowers as they killed everything green, started growing cucumbers. They did that too. Grew them to full size. And we waited for the sun to feel its song, on our skin to have its warm tumbling our faces. More death on the news, so we turned the TV off. But we saw it anyway, because we kept social media on. And still we waited, but summer never came. Behind the windows of our keep safe cages, we bear witness as trees scream and drop their leaves. The sky cried, and the carpets on the ground went to rot. And my friend was crying in their Fukuma salad as another friend was no more. We gathered on the screen and we did what we could in honor of her memory and in respect of the grief filling the space that used to be her. Her harmonies echoed, but we never sang. We never sang. It's strange how the things that we get comfort in was taken from us and how we never noticed, we never thought that we would miss singing as a way to hold our pain and to hold our grief. This is an ode to September. I don't know why. I don't know why. I was born in September. Um, <laughs> to you, September, because you crease by the edges and shrink if I touch you too hard. You're the hardest softy. You're the softest hardy. There are two long days, short nights. There are two long nights, short days, and there's you, arbitrator, balance. Remember when we first met? Me neither. Those were the days when you went back to school and I hated you. Those were the days when you went back to school and I loved you. Summer and you just need to sit and talk. You can work it out. You can live together, I promise. Hugs. Hugs. It's not an identity crisis. You were never meant to be summer. You were never meant to be winter. You are you, glorious, golden, beautifully individual September. November, can't wait to meet you. But October is always in the way. Any one of you who's out there thinking that about your friends, love or stop it. Um, sometimes life is like that. She'd be so good to you too. So, that 30 days thing, eh? You, April, June, and November, huh? How is it being in the chosen here? Did I mention November wants to meet you? She really does. Really, really does. Sunshine says hello. I hear it's spider mating season. I was told to ask you. Do you know anything about that? For all those times, I seemed not to notice. You understand. There are some weird human socialization issues around how to behave with one new fancy unlearning necessary process implemented. November, I have told her of your yearning. There's nothing we can do about October. Get over it. Your name has a certain zing to it. The way your curves wrap around my lips. I am talking about September. The way your curves wrap around my lips. The way your middle sits on my tongue. September 10, 10. I am very interested in the minutia of your day. Blow by blow, slide by slide, give it to me. Live and in living color. You give it, but damn you, you take it away, you take it. You rain, you rain, your mornings, your mornings after rain. I really miss you when you're gone. You ruin me for all of the months. You always come around again, just as I am getting over you. I dig on you hard. Love, love, 
love. Or something like it. You. It was you all along. There are some parallels between PJ Samuels and the guests who you had on next, Joelle Taylor, not least having a signature sense of style and being able to say some quite difficult and in some cases extremely difficult and hard-hitting things in a way that is charismatic and in a way that even an audience that aren't particularly familiar with performance poetry can relate to almost immediately. I think Joelle has very rare gifts, wouldn't you say? I think Joelle is a rock star, I mean, I think her her delivery and her performance style is just extraordinary. And I've seen her many times over the years. She once did a gig with us at a library and the usual person that we dealt with wasn't there. And so when we arrived at the, at the venue, we were sort of an unknown quantity to the librarian who greeted us. And it, um, Those library gigs are always a little bit tough yeah. anyway. But I'm then you had that. Yeah. We were seated in this kind of like brightly lit, sad little corner of the library. Me, um, Karen McLeod was there. Uh, I think Alexis Gregory was there and Joelle. And I put I put Joelle on first because I didn't know her very well then. I put her on first and she came on and she just blew everyone away. And the woman who'd previously been quite kind of sniffy suddenly just looked at us with this n- newfound awe and respect so um, she was my secret weapon that night without me even realising it. But I, 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 do, I do think that over the... I mean, that was some years ago. That was about 2015, maybe, I think. Like, like, like many performers, she's got better and better and better. I think the work has, has become braver. I mean, Songs My Enemy Taught Me, which was the last book, I think is an extraordinary book, and that she is able to articulate vulnerability in a way that feels powerful, which I think is an extraordinary gift. And well, I, I, I find it very humbling, actually. I find it very humbling to, me to, to watch her perform. I think, I think when she performed the, the previous Polari in Heaven back in February 2019, she was on in the first half. She closed the first half and David McAlmont closed the second half singing. And one of the, com- one of the people in the audience tweeted saying... Joelle Taylor broke my heart and David McCallmont mended it again. And I thought that was an absolutely perfect way of summing up that the tone. She does have that wonderful way of just really grabbing you and, and really twisting you around and you, you, you feel quite mauled by it. Um, it's incredibly tough. I mean, in some ways, her and PJ are similar in the sense that they have a very good performance style and they they can deliver words and content which is incredibly hard-hitting but in a way that makes it palatable just by the sheer force of personality but on the other hand they're also very different because PJ's got a sort of earth mama quality about her and Joelle is this real old school butch and she's really got that butch thing going on and she's really you know she's backstage straightening up her tie and we're comparing suits and (laughs) shoes and collars and things (laughs) of course a pair of dandies, you two. She's a very sharp dresser, um, and she's a terrific performer. And she, I mean, she was wonderful that night, as I knew she would be. You know, they're like glass display cabinets you find in the museum. And they begin a 
wrong day. Valentine flicks her lighter in the corner of the club and white women flutter. Tonight, she has dressed as the inside of her mouth, a hand-sewn suit excised from a cured night sky. Black leather has its own skin care routine. It listens to its mother. I've heard it said some girls give birth to themselves from the backs of motorbikes. Invent the wind. Let the road uncurl from between their legs. The lemniscate motorway, something British and unbidden. And oh, why we're drawn to the corners. It's where the road cannot reach us. Every part of a woman is a weapon if you know how to hold that, Valentine says. The corner flicks a morse, and in the dark, a white hearts beat like moss against a headline. Thank you. As well as introducing us to the cast of her book and the regulars at the Maryville, the original dyke bar that Joelle imagines and portrays so beautifully. She also introduced the ideas of some of the awful things that are going on to our LGBT brothers and sisters around the world, sometimes only a short plane ride away. And this poem explores that, looking again at the metaphor of the queer club or aquarium. The interrogation suite is in the old gay club. The mirror ball reflects on its mistakes, has each of us imprisoned in its vernacular. We stare up at one another, sad parenthesis of beauty, refracted into something unwell, unwelcome in our homes, our bodies. And when the purge walks in, whistling, show tunes, tipping, the bouncers, others slowly appear. A rainbow slumped in a gilded cage, a girl, still as brass, eyes, escape tunnels. A queen, dances in a dress of blue bruises. A brown-eyed boy, young as love, swallows her foam and does not cry. A suited woman, asks for a cigarette, but when it comes, it is a country. Hey, maybe we'll get to write a musical. Something about rainbows and sickles. It will start when the red curtain pulls apart. Each side no longer speaking to the other. And there we will be. Tap dancing in chorus lines, hollow cheeked and high kicking. Barbed wires, a feather boa, a noose comes in Oxford colours. And when we show our teeth to a lens, there will be a high wall somewhere that no one will be able to see around. But listen, you will say, an ear pressed against the wall. Listen, are they not happy? Do they not dance? Is the melody not a catch for a cathedral of girls snuffed like candles by? I'll delete every tweet, but it won't matter. I'll be screenshot before I am shot. A jury of antelopes will wipe their bloody lips on a photograph of me caught in the ropes of a kiss. So little difference between a bluebird and a blue bottle. Let it soar the day in half. Let a boy reach for the hand of air. Let a woman take her seat at a desk. Each of them a fixed point. The first part of me to disappear will be my mouth, sugar and water. Then my hand, fingers erasing to pencil brothers, a shoulder sent risen to sauna steam. Ancestors, left foot, both legs, torso stripped through to the metal seat. Delete my heart. Evaporate the idea of me, a slow strip, tease down to the breath, the belief. The last part of me to disappear, my absence. 
In the second half of the show, Paul introduced Fiji Lee, a favourite among all Polari audiences from around the UK and potentially even beyond. I was very delighted to see Val at the venue, but my delight was also tinged with sadness because this would be the last time that Val would be performing, at least as far as we know. Going back, Paul and I have worked together for many years and I was very privileged to capture this moment on the night, not only because we had been indoors for about seven months, but because heaven was so full of memories and celebration and sadness and it was greatly cathartic to be there. Also, it was a privilege for me to be there as part of Polari, which is becoming a long-standing partnership. And speaking yeah. of long-standing partnerships, you and VG Lee, and you mentioned that this was her last performance. How did that feel to have that in part two and to know that it was the last time that Val would be performing with you? Well, I knew it was going to be bittersweet. I knew that she'd be funny. I knew that she would get the people laughing. And I wanted the second half of the show to lift people up because the first half of the show was quite hard-hitting. So I always think in terms of narrative when I'm putting a show together um, and in terms of the emotional impact of something. So you want people to, le- to you know, leave at the end of the night feeling that they've gone th- through an emotional journey and they're uplifted. And I knew that Val's, the, st- the story she was going to read, which is very autobiographical, that comes from Oh You Pretty Thing, her last her most recent short story collection. And it's about being married when she, she was she was married to a guy years ago. And it's about being unhappily married. And it's a very, very bittersweet, funny story. And that sort of fitted the the mood, really, because it was a bittersweet experience for me to be, to be introducing her on stage for the... I don't know how many times I've, I've introduced B.G. Lee on stage because she has travelled with me on tour... Not every year, but nearly every year since 2014. We must we must have done hundreds, literally hundreds mm. of gigs together. And she's always been my partner in crime. She's always been the person that sort of gives me the pep talk before the, before I go on stage. Says to me, no, don't have another drink, Paul. You, you don't need another drink. She was the person who used to do that back in the days when I did drink. And she's always been a great person to, to travel with because she's great fun and she's a great... She always delivers. She always delivers. You know, one of the acts hasn't gone down very well or something. You can always rely on Val to come on afterwards and just get everyone up again. She's just great with an audience. It was a very... I had very mixed feelings about it. It was exciting and thrilling to have her there. And she was very excited about being at Heaven and being on that big stage. But it was also very sad as well because, you know, as far, well, unless she changes her mind, who knows? But at, the, at, the, at, the, at this moment in time, it's her last gig. So she's not planning to do any more. She wants to focus on her allotment and on her writing. I do understand it. You know, she spent an awful lot of time travelling and doing gigs. And she lives in Hastings. So doing gigs in the north of England or elsewhere. You know, she'd, she'd have to get the train early in the morning to get to London to then get the other train to get on and then get back late at night or the next day. And, you know, she, she has a cat who she loves dearly. So I, I, I do understand she's made choices. And I think going through the... I know, well, I know because she, she told me, but going through last year, I think a lot of people last year faced with what was happening made a lot of choices about what they wanted their priorities to be going forward. And hers is, is, is to get to, to complete the books that she hasn't finished yet. Cause she has, Val's always got several books on the go. She's been writing for so long and she's got lots of unfinished novels. I mean, I, I know of at least four or five um, that she's, we, we've been in a writing group together for many years. And so I've had the privilege of, um, of reading large chunks of some of them um, but she wants to get all that work completed that's her that's her priority now so she'd rather do that than focus on the performing so but I, you know she, she she went she went out on a high you know she went out on a real high um, she came on to these boots are made for walking by Nancy Sinatra <laughs> wearing a 60s wig and and big boots um, with the photograph of herself behind her on stage when she was very young and married in a sort of very 60s sex kitten outfit. Um, it was a fantastic photo. It's actually the photo on the cover of the book. Um, and she had great fun. She enjoyed it. She, she enjoyed herself. And then she did, her, she did her Auntie Val post bag where she does these, these, these 
fictitious, I think, possibly one could call them, um, agony aunt letters that she receives from various people and then she gives them her advice, which is firm but fair. <laughs> and very funny. Absolutely. Very funny. Well, we will miss her, including audiences in the Northeast. I know she has some fans there um, among my family and also in London because she is very funny and she has been making me laugh quite painfully since I first saw her at what was Why Laugh and is now Elfest in uh, 2008. Yeah. So that was when we first met. And she was doing um, not a story about Deirdre, who's the other badly behaved character in, in, in her short stories, but one about Pat and I. I was just insensible with laughter. There's just something very, very clever about the way that she writes. But I like the fact that she didn't sort of bust out an old favourite and the fact that even though it was her, her last appearance, she's still kind of keeping it fresh by doing something that's personal to her, even if that story doesn't have quite as many laughs in it. I think it, it's pretty much a novella, Oh You Pretty Thing. I think it's a really yeah. interesting piece of work. I mean, I mean, it, it, would, it would have been very easy for her to have done, you know, Deirdre in the cinema very. story, which always it has people falling over in the aisles, you know, um, or well, any, any any one of those Deirdre stories that that she has, which are which are all they they they're guaranteed crowd pleasers. But I think she I think she made the right decision to 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 be in the here and now, even though the story is set not in the here and now, but it, it's her it's it, it's her. It's her work in the here and now. It's not an old piece that she's that she's that she's dusted off and trotted out again. It was a new. It was a you know, relatively new piece of work. So, yes. I think that was the right decision. Behind us. In 1969, I got married 
Um, it was to be 10 years before I ever met um, a lesbian. In fact, it was 10 years before I even heard the word lesbian. I lived just outside London, and it was a very small community. Um, so, I got married at 19, and my husband was six months younger than I was. And my reason for marrying him seemed a good one at the time. He looked like the good-looking member of the Bee Gees. <laughs> a lot in our village. <laughs> so it, it, it was rather cool on my part. Um, I don't think he probably wanted to marry me, but I can be very persistent and annoying. Um, so we did marry, and um, it lasted till I was 35, because I kept wanting him to ask a question that I could answer with, I'm leaving. Um, and it took to, to my aunt's birthday in April of 1985 before he said something like, do you want to leave? And um, it was the chance I had and I, I rose to the occasion. And had he asked it six years earlier, I'd have gone. I think I'm very resilient. So this uh, excerpt is about Mark and Julie, and it could just as easily be about Rob and Val. Um, I was a very different person in those days. I didn't think much. I was narrow-minded, quite an awful, awful person. Um, and I've managed to quell some of those over the years. Uh, but this is Mark and Julie, or uh, Mark and Julie wear matching 15 carat gold wedding rings. Julie's got an engagement ring as well, a diamond, small but real, in a fashion setting. After she'd been working at Info House, a small marketing company a mile away from where she lived in Hemel Hempstead, for a few weeks, Donna, the office manager, asked her how long she'd been married. Seven years, Julie said. Donna looked amazed. Julie, you're only about 18, I thought. Marriage will suit you. Julie flashed her a smile. Yes, it does. But actually, it only sort of suited her. If you'd had to give marks out of 10, it would probably have been a four. Although, had you asked Mark, it said 10 out of 10, no question, babe. Okay. Things Julie likes about being married, being addressed as Mrs. Norman instead of playing on Miss of Judy Foster, bringing the words my husband into most conversations, going shopping at the weekend with her husband, Waitrose in Berkhamsted for groceries, and the recently opened Marlowe Shopping Centre for clothes and a meal. One Saturday in particular sticks in Judy's memory. At the time, there seemed nothing special about the day. Only later, years later, did he, when she looked back, with a mixture of sadness and relief, but never regret. She saw it as significant. Julie's admiring her reflection in the mirrored double doors of their fitted wardrobe, turning this way and that, thinking that not every woman can carry off ice blue skin-tight jeans in a size 10, worn with a baby pink crop top. She turns to Mark, who's absorbed in colour coding his sock drawer, and says, I don't look too bad, do I? You look fantastic, he says. Did I ever tell you? I was the most unpopular girl in my school, she said. You did tell me. I never go to a school reunion, Mark, but just sometimes I think I'd enjoy seeing everyone's faces if I did go. Really, I'd have to be dead and floating above them and then see myself walk into the assembly hall and everyone's jaw dropping. Mark looks at her with admiration, as if she'd said something really profound. Babe, I don't want you dead, but I'd love to be with you at that reunion. He joins her reflection in the mirror. You know, Julie, these are our best years. We've got to make the most of them. They'll never come back. It's Julie's turn to look at Mark admiringly, as if he said something really profound. How long will they last, Marky? 
You look lovely when you're 90, he says. That will do for me, she says. As Paul said earlier, Fiji Lee also has an alter ego, Auntie Val, the questionably helpful agony aunt. And here we get a couple of extracts from people who have written into Auntie Val, asking her to solve their romantic problems. They're braver than I am. Bless you all. Um, it's, it is quite emotional actually being here. So. We love you. We love you, Val. Um, Please don't so go. Much. I will have to go because people need to be over there, far away. Although I say they don't, and they wish I'd just go away. One of my other hats on, um, I am a, a sort of an Auntie Val agony aunt um, in the LGBTQ community. So um, now this is this is a, a one for the for the men in the audience. Dear Auntie Val, I've been with my partner Clive for 23 years. We are still deliriously happy. However, for his 50th birthday after lockdown, Clive has asked me if I can procure a lookalike version of Ryan Gosling for a once-in-a-lifetime night of passion. I have always been open to new experiences. After all, I was the one who introduced Clive to the magic of our Juliet food presser in polished processor in polished chrome, but I feel this experience may not prove as beneficial to our relationship. Any thoughts? Signed, Captain Eric Jewsbury, RAF Prize Norton. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Eric, you do not say if you're included in this night of passion, but no matter, Clive has obviously put you in the driving seat. Orchestrate the event meticulously, and if you're not to be part of it, book into a five-star hotel and have a delicious meal served in your room. Rest assured, Clive will be totally intimidated by this young man and unable to function satisfactorily. <laughs> you will return home to find a wiser and grateful partner. Of course, I could be wrong, and you'll find the locks changed and your clothes will be busted. In a black door crack on the front step, just in case I'm sending you my leaflet when one door closes. <laughs> Why not settle for a Labrador puppy? 
Not all the foreign teachers we study who have much in common. Finally, having glanced at your photograph, your friends have misled you. <laughs> Part two of Polari in Heaven will feature Alexis Gregory performing extracts from his show Riot Act, which on the night were accompanied with images and film. Hopefully that will be up in the next couple of weeks and I very much look forward to editing that and introducing it to you. To finish off this episode, I asked Paul what he thought of how the night had gone and what had been positive and what had been challenging about it. It was a really special night and I hope that that's come across in the programme. We'll be back with you very soon. For me, it was a, it was a total triumph because it was, it was putting Polari back on stage again at a really landmark, large venue um, before a, a sizable audience you know, of over 100 people. So for me, that was a huge success and it, and, it, and it gave me a real boost after being, you know, basically doing everything on Zoom for the previous seven months until that. So to be back among live performers again, the, the, I mean, I, I, do, I do think Zoom is wonderful and I do think that going forward, there will be, always be a place for doing online events. I think many people are, are, are realising that and I certainly am going, I'm planning to do that partly because you can reach people that wouldn't be able to come to events for whatever reason, who can't physically get there or whatever. But you can't really beat, for me, that feeling of being on stage with a live audience. There's something that happens between performer and audience which you can't replicate online. It's very hard to replicate that. There's something organic about it. And I just I just left on on such a high and... Also, I left sober. You know, normally, I leave Polari at Heaven pretty drunk because I usually have quite a few drinks after the show as well. It was quite nice just to, to be walking out of there feeling very fresh and, you know, having done the job, wasn't dreading a hangover the next morning for the first time. And I thought everyone delivered. I thought, well, I, I thought all the performers gave really great performances. I thought it was it was a, it was a, a stonker of a show, as they say in Wales. It was stonking. So I was very proud of it.